It's been a full 12 months now since the start of the Special Military Operation, or SMO, in Ukraine. This is what the Russians call the incursion into the north, the east, and the southern part of Ukraine. This happened in February 2022. And as the dust on the road to the SMO has somewhat-ish settled, I think this is a good time to stop, take stock of the key players, their motivations, and ultimately analyze the road and timetable leading to the SMO in 2022. In the next episode, I will drill down to the winners and the losers of the conflict. That's a whole separate thing. In this episode, I'm going to be talking about the path, the road, who, February 2022. Now, there are related episodes that you can go back and check out. There's an episode on just Russia-US relations and why they really hate each other. There's an episode on the collapse of the USSR. There's an episode on NATO. And there are other episodes that ultimately tie in somewhat-ish to this event in February of 2022, exactly one year ago. So, with that said, let's dig in. One other thing, to be clear, this is not a pro-Ukraine or a pro-NATO or a pro-Russia episode. It is just my take on the events leading to the Russian incursion. We are still in the early days of all this, even 12 months out. So, I still assume this conflict is rife with propaganda on all sides, and it is firmly politics and not history. So, I want to be clear that this is not taking sides. Also, some of you have, may have picked up on the point that I keep saying the word incursion and not invasion. I'm saying that because in Feb 2022 and early months, it was nothing but an incursion and not a full invasion. The evidence, to me, suggests that the Russians did not plan or seek a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. My estimates for a full invasion occupation of Ukraine they would need 500,000 troops on the ground, possibly more, preceded by months of prep work, such as several weeks of advanced bombing campaigns to destroy all military and civilian infrastructure. This is what, for example, the US did in advance of invading Iraq. It aerial bombed every last infrastructure item, and that lasted several weeks. The US called it shock and awe. It was basically the destruction of Iraq's civilian infrastructure roads, bridges, electricity, water, and so on and so forth. And that was before the actual invasion. The Russians did no such thing. Thus, I call it an incursion, not an invasion, at least at the start. Now, that said, from a Ukrainian standpoint, there is no question that their territory was invaded by a foreign power, and thus they were at war. But again, from an objective third-party perspective, the Russians went in with no evident full-scale invasion in mind, even though for a Ukrainian, it seemed like a full-scale invasion. So, who were the key players? Well, of course, Ukraine, Russia, the US, and I guess, to some degree, the EU and NATO. These would be the country participants. But civilizationally, it was essentially the Slavs and the Orthodox Christians on one side, and on the other side, you had the Anglo-led alliance and the Latin Christians. But before I dive into the main players, I want to highlight one important thing. That Ukraine itself is nothing but the theater for the Americans to fight the Russians. A conflict that has been cooking and been in the making for decades. So this is a conflict that looks like Russia versus Ukraine. But in reality, 
It's the US versus Russia. It's a war the Americans desperately wanted. It's a war the Russians needed. This is an important distinction. The US really wanted the war. Russia needed the war. A need and a want. Why don't we start with Ukraine itself? This is, after all, the theater of the conflict. Ukraine has been in a state of civil war, or had been in a state of civil war, since the year 2014, if not sooner. In 2014, you had the Euromedan protests. These were indigenous protests backed and abetted by the U.S. government. This Medan uprising, essentially, was a bunch of demonstrations, thus civil unrest in Ukraine, beginning on the 21st of November, 2013. There were large protests in Medan, known as Independence Square in Kiev. The protests were sparked by the Ukrainian government's decision not to sign the European Union-Ukraine Association Agreement, instead choosing closer ties to Russia and the Eurasian Economic Union. Ukraine's parliament had approved of finalizing the agreement with the EU, while Russia had put pressure on Ukraine to reject it. The scope of the protests widened, with calls for the resignation of President Viktor Yanukovych after he had rejected it. These Euromedan protests led to the 2014 so-called Revolution of Dignity. This was when deadly clashes between protesters and security forces in Kiev ended up in the ousting of elected President Viktor Yanukovych and the overthrow of the whole Ukrainian government. This action led to the Russian annexation of Crimea and subsequent military involvement in the eastern Donbass region of Ukraine. All in all, the Ukraine government, in my view, in 1991, when the USSR fell, in 2014, when Euromedan happened, and in 2022, when Russia attacked, in my view, Ukraine as a small power or a buffer state between the larger powers of the US, the US owns Europe and NATO, and Russia, has as its primary job to function as a sovereign state. That's it. That's all it has to do. That's the job of the government. Their job also is to balance the two powers on your doorstep, the US to the West and Russia to the East, and not let either of them take over your sovereignty. There are many, many buffer states in the world. Nepal is one, Mongolia is another, and Ukraine is another. If you have the bear on one side and the eagle on the other, you better be smart in your foreign policy. Take an overt side would likely be detrimental for your survival. If Nepal suddenly chose Chinese troops to be hosted in Nepal, India would rightly freak out. Ukraine failed to resist the constant calling of the promised riches of the West. It failed its own Russian-speaking citizens in the East and the South. It had been completely overtaken after 2014 by both Russian troops and Western troops. In Donbass, the Russians were aiding and betting the breakaway republics. Russia was formerly in Crimea. The West, essentially the US, was all over the Western part of Ukraine with military, financial, and other clandestine support. Ukraine was essentially the turkey being primed for roasting right before Christmas, hence leaders allowed their country to become this turkey. It was a failure of leadership on an epic scale. One other thing that I want to highlight, and it's kind of specific to Ukraine, and that is Russophobia. There was a lot of Russophobia in Ukraine leading up to 2022, especially coming from Ukrainian, Western Ukrainians towards the Russian-speaking Eastern Ukrainians. This has some moral issues, doesn't really have any specific geopolitical implications. Ukraine is not the only country to have neo-Nazis in it. Many European and surrogate European countries all over the world do 
do have neo-Nazis in them. But Ukraine is probably the only country, at least the only country in Europe, to allow Nazis in its military and parts of its government. That, again, does not have geopolitical implications because their primary focus was the Russian speakers in the east and south of their own country. But it does annoy their neighbor if that neighbor happens to be Russia. Next up, then, the Russians. In 1991, the Russian Federation was formed out of the Soviet Union, just like Ukraine was in 1991 as well. Russia was economically weak and pretty much toothless. Unlike Ukraine, Russia ended up absorbing much of the debts of its neighbors, and I believe Ukraine's debts too, in exchange for Ukraine's nukes. In any event, those nukes could only have been operated from Moscow and not Kiev. It was just the most practical and safe thing to do at the time. In addition, through a quirk of accident, or an accident of history, whatever you want to call it, Crimea ended up with Ukraine, not with Russia. Crimea, aside from hosting a massive and important naval base for Russia, is also home to essentially Russians and not ethnic Ukrainians. So it was strategically critical to Russia. Also, with the loss of Ukraine, Russia's access to the Black Sea was limited to just that base in Ukraine, and it's now reduced shoreline on the Black Sea. Without Crimea, Russia would lose the Black Sea completely and its ability to project power outside the Black Sea would be dead. Between 1991 and 2011, a long 20 years, Russia was economically weak and blinkered-eyed. It was under the impression that as a European power, it would belong in the European security infrastructure. And most of its population, they assumed, was of European stock. However, events since 1991 raised cause for alarm that started to ring those alarm bells inside the Kremlin, but very late. In the early days after 1991, Russia tried to keep it together by seeing off rebellions inside its own land, such as Chechnya, and in neighboring countries such as Georgia. It was fighting one battle after another for its own territorial integrity. Outside its own region, Russian leaders watched with some horror as the US attacked Serbia in the 1990s, but did so under the NATO banner. Invaded Afghanistan, also under the NATO banner in the early 2000s. Iraq in 2003, although not under the NATO banner. The US was causing willful coups in places like Venezuela, Turkey, and other Middle Eastern states in the hope of inspiring them to become liberal democracies. Even in 2021, there were Medan-style coup attempts in Kazakhstan and Belarus. Russia had to send its military in to curb those uprisings. Things were getting hot. Then in spring 2021, the United Kingdom sailed a warship next to Crimea. The UK still did not recognize the annexation of Crimea of 2014 and sailed, in theory, through Ukrainian waters. But this was land that had been annexed by Russia and therefore the water was also annexed by Russia. I will talk about Minsk 1 and Minsk 2 a bit later. But all of this was happening. And then you look at NATO and the quick expansion of the group from the west to the east, including the Baltic states and Poland, even little Macedonia. In the Kremlin, you would just see this whole big US cross from Siberia over the North Sea. That would be Canada, which is a NATO country. Then you would see a few miles from St. Petersburg, NATO which is essentially the Baltics, Poland, you would see U.S. bases in Japan and South Korea on the eastern flank of the Russian Far East. In 2008, 
the U.S. opened the door for Georgia and Ukraine to join NATO. Given what I've just outlined, this U.S.-based circularization, if that's a word, of Russia, this was a red line. Russia knows that if you take Georgia and Ukraine, Russia is essentially next. From a British perspective, NATO is simple. It's about keeping the Germans down, the Americans in, and the Russians out. From a German and general EU perspective, it is about, i.e. NATO, is about free and cheap defense. From an American perspective, NATO is an extension of its own empire and a way to fund its military-industrial complex. But from a Russian perspective, that NATO, that multi-trillion dollar defense or offense budget, is aimed at simply one country in the world. NATO is aimed at Russia. NATO is not designed to fight Nigeria or Botswana. That's why Estonia is in NATO. Tahana, which is actually on the North Atlantic, but a black African country, is not in NATO. I'm sure there's a racial dimension to this too, but you get my gist here. The objective is to defeat the Slav enemy. So from a Russian perspective, in early 2022, they had to decide. They had to decide to either fight NATO in their own country or to fight NATO in someone else's country. If that other country is Ukraine, so be it. That other country wants to be the Turkey, then so be it. Just one look at the geography will tell you why Ukraine and Georgia are critical to Russia's security and for the ability for the U.S. to defeat Russia. Ukraine and Georgia are both on the Black Sea. And if Russia wanted to avoid it becoming a NATO lake, much like the Baltic Sea already had become, it would need to act fast. First, of course, is the action to stir trouble within both Georgia and Ukraine, so the civil unrest would put off the EU and NATO of membership for these countries. But with Ukraine, that was not working. NATO had become more successful in transforming Ukraine over using the locally held Russophobia against the Russians. The Nazi Azov Battalion had and hold the false hope of joining NATO and the EU. On top of all this, Ukraine was and is the most corrupt country in Europe and one of the most corrupt countries in the world, almost at par with banana republics in Latin America of old. It was so bad that it, in its own system, Political parties, especially Russian ones, were actually banned. These are developments that could not be ignored by the Kremlin. Indeed, anyone in the Kremlin would geopolitically look at any event like this with alarm and concern. He did not need to be Vladimir Putin to deduce that. Why? Because the state objective of the new US President Joe Biden was the same one as that stated under Barack Obama. And that is of regime change in Russia. Regime change means one thing and one thing alone. Violence. That means civil strife, conflict, and civil war. So as I stated before, and I will state again, Russia was faced with two options. Fight NATO in Russia, or fight NATO in Ukraine. Because now, after all this, the options were getting even narrower for them. Let's stay with Europe. So you have the continent of Europe on which you have countries like the UK and Germany. On the same continent, you have Ukraine and Russia. On the continent of Europe, 
Moscow is the largest city in Europe and Russia the largest country in Europe. You have NATO. It's a bunch of European countries and it includes stuff like Latvia and Denmark, all given protection by the US and you have the European Union with countries that cross NATO and crisscross like Austria and stuff like that. Anyway, most of these EU countries are tiny in size and population. Inside the EU, there is no real decision-making authority. These are all fundamentally independent countries, theoretically in economic and political union. But Hungary and Belgium can and do have extremely different views on the world. And it's impossible for them, as the EU, to decide on anything, let alone key foreign policy. The EU and NATO are simply US proxies and tools for the US to project policy. They have no power and are hapless bystanders in a geostrategic environment where they have traded in sovereignty for cheap energy and food from Russia, cheap goods from China, and cheap defense from the US. All of that was traded in for creating their socialist utopia. Clean streets, traffic lights, outstanding infrastructure, education, and healthcare. All of this social security net was because the US was providing cheap defense, China cheap goods, and Russia cheap energy and cheap food. All in all, the EU and NATO do not have any power and authority whatsoever. None. They have a collective voice, i.e. the collective West, to air their concerns. But that's it. It's not much. And why should they have a voice? The US secures their defense so it can, should, and does call the shots. You can look at it another way, perhaps. Maybe you can think about it as the US as the core homeland. Then you have NATO, the EU, the UK, G7, and Five Eyes plus South Korea as bits and pieces of the extended empire. The situation in Europe is such that there are only really just two militaries in Europe, the US military and the Russian military. No other real balance of power other than these two exist. So a road to war becomes more inevitable if only these two sworn enemies are faced off one another on the same continent. Bygone eras, Germany or Prussia or whatever that entity over there could be, would watch over the French or Franks or whoever that entity is, and the Anglos or whoever that entity is. So, in the old days, Germany would watch over the French and the Anglos on one flank, and the Poles and the Russians on the other. The Poles would need to watch the Germans and the Russians both of them. The French would need to keep an eye on for the Germans on one side and the Anglos on the other. They would ultimately, and this is the bottom line, in the good old days, they would all ultimately just cancel one another out, except if they're in an alliance of some kind, such as NATO or the Warsaw Pact, or even something like World War I. But since 1945, the Europeans, for the most part, especially the main country in Europe, Germany, has been domesticated like a puppy, that they would be unlikely to be able to fight a real war, let alone win a war. France and the UK can still do nuclear threats, but without fighting, without an army, without any investment in the military, they too are toothless tigers reliant on US taxpayers for their defense. So, we need to look at the US and what the US motivation going into the Ukraine conflict of 2022 really is. Now, it has multiple layers. 
When Hillary Clinton was foreign minister, knowing the U.S. as Secretary of State, and Barack Obama was the president, there was this concept of a reset of relations with Russia after 2012. This, by the way, completely fell apart, in large part because of Russia's own activities at home, inside of Russia, but also some activities abroad. The West, and the U.S. in particular, are extremely good preachers, like a priest, typically moralistic and They love hitting home the idea of things like climate change, free speech, free journalism, and so on and so forth. Not bad things, but annoying to listen to day after day, especially if the preacher is guilty as charged of the same things they're preaching about. Also, Westerners are the only governments poke their noses into other people's domestic affairs. India did not have a habit of telling Russia how to deal with their domestic issues and vice versa. The Americans do. It's just a colonial leftover. Anyway, the domestic thing that irked the Americans inside of Russia and in no particular order are, at least in my view. Number one, it includes stuff like jailing leaders critical of President Putin. We don't and can't know if all of them were on foreign payrolls anyway, but that aside, deaths of political opponents of President Putin, crackdowns on protesters and stuff like that really, really irked the West. Two, harsh tactics in keeping restive regions of Russia together. Chechnya was one example. Three, LGBTQ plus rights. Russia has a high degree of cultural intolerance for same-sex relationships. Over the years, various Russian governments, and especially at the local level, would enact laws against homosexuality. From the US perspective, the June 2013 federal law criminalizing the distribution of materials among minors in support of non-traditional sexual relationships that was enacted in Russia was amended to an existing child protection law. It resulted in the arrest of many LGBTQ plus protesters. In my view, this event, this domestic law, was the real turning point in how the US viewed Russia and its relationship in geopolitical terms. It was this June law, and in the minds of the liberal elite in Washington, D.C., that final nail in the reset with Russia was sealed with this. In terms of overseas things that Russia did that was something that the U.S. did not like, and I'll give you five. One was Russia was head over heels involved in Syria's civil war, keeping President Assad afloat inside U.S. goals of removing him, i.e., The U.S. wanted him out, Russia wanted him in, and ultimately Russia won. He stayed. The Russian FSB would use its covert operations to kill and capture former spies and dissidents in Western countries. That's point number two. Point number three. The Russians would be militarily involved in propping up pro-Russian leaders in neighboring former Soviet states, such as Belarus, Kazakhstan, and of course Ukraine, where they had tried and ultimately failed with Viktor Yanukovych. Number four. Russia harbored Edward Snowden, who was the U.S. traitor, or the U.S. would consider a traitor. Number five. This is interesting. The U.S. Democratic Party had particular beef with Russia over their Republicans, or at least the Donald Trump Republicans. Let's break it down. In 2016, the U.S. intelligence agencies and many Democrats claimed that the victory of Republican Donald Trump over establishment favorite Hillary Clinton had strong Russian interference, including use of social media, and of planting stories elsewhere in the media and social media 
to cause people to then vote for Trump and discredit Hillary. There was also a side debate on, at the time, to see if Trump's campaign actively worked with Russian agents. Let me nip this in the bud and clear the air a little bit here. The idea of Russian collusion has not been found. Was there Russian interference in the election? Possibly. We have the U.S. intelligence agency's word to go on. But in honest truth, two things. One, the U.S. screws everyone else's elections and does it both covertly and overtly. If Russia bought a few Facebook ads and threw in a couple of Twitter posts, it's both fair game, to me at least, and unlikely to change the course of the election anyway. But two, that lie was bought by enough Democrats and many Republicans that the Russia-phobia inside the Democratic Party in the U.S. grew to unimaginable levels that would then be compounded by the arrival of Joe Biden as president in 2021. Already, both hawkish Republicans and Democrats in Congress had their anti-Russia hats on and were actively visiting Ukraine over the years to prepare that turkey for Christmas. This domestic debate on Russia in the U.S. reached such fever pitch that the U.S. president was calling the Russian president a thug, a mafia type, and later even called him a killer. Not that the U.S. presidents themselves would fall under any of these categories, including Biden himself, by the way. It's an awful way to conduct diplomacy. Pretty much ended Russia-U.S. relations. Biden would not dare call Xi Jinping of China any of that, would he? Why? Because China has a big military, big presence, and big economy. He wouldn't call Bush that either, or himself that either, would he? Biden had convinced himself of his own lies, that Russia was nothing more than a big petrol or gas station, and Putin was a bad guy that needed to be taken out. In other words, the stated U.S. policy towards Russia was and is regime change, and that just means one thing, violence. The language in the U.S. media became similar to the language used against Gaddafi before he got taken out, before Saddam, before he got taken out, and before the U.S. went after Assad. The focus shifts in the narrative from the country to the leader. The media moved its attention away from Russia and Russians to Putin and his, I air quote, stooges. That's how the U.S. media at least justify war. It's always an easier sell to a domestic audience if the bad guy is one person and not millions of people. Also, inside the Democratic Party, the Democrats favored the fact that the Russians and Putin himself was white. If you need an enemy to fight, he'd better off being white-looking than being Asian-looking or African-looking or Latin American-looking was something that hit the Democrats' vote bank and narrative domestically. For the woke elite, they had the man, and he was the right shade of grey. Biden, as president, had a mission to undo as much of Trump as possible, including in foreign policy. North Korea was given the cold shoulder. China was no change, but they were given better diplomacy. India was knocked back. Saudi was knocked back. And Israel was knocked back. But Russia 
was the pumpkin pie that could be cut up into little bits and pieces. Obama-era foreign policy Russophobes, especially the Ukraine-obsessed Victoria Newland, was brought back into the government. The jigsaws were being put into place. No one gave a second thought to what could happen to, say, 6,000 active nuclear warheads if Russia went into chaos because of Putin is evil. Public were being prepared. Revenge for the mythical Russian collusion in 2016 was a bigger political price that had to be extracted. For the US, the loss of the Afghan war in 2021, with Biden's clumsy departure from Kabul following the loss of the Iraq war some years earlier, was a huge embarrassment. Worse meant that Afghanistan could no longer be used as a staging ground for cleaning dirty money and funding the military-industrial complex. Ukraine was the next pie that could be cut. Money laundering had to be re-established, and a crypto company called FTX was used to funnel US aid dollars to Ukraine. Remember how corrupt Ukraine is? Those US dollars were fed back to US politicians, including President Biden, to fund their 2022 midterm campaigns. As soon as the election was over, FTX, the company, conveniently collapsed. Speaking of corruption, and we know corruption exists everywhere, and Putin is likely to be corrupt too, but those corruptions don't always lead to full-scale war. This one did. One other factor. is in the last days of Obama's presidency, while Joe Biden was vice president, his son, Hunter Biden, was involved as a board member for a company that deals in natural gas, called Busima where bribes and laundering were common in a country where corruption was common. Biden may have thought back then that he needs funds for his family post-government and likely had no plans to come back and fight an election. Anyway, a careless laptop with all of Hunter's exploits was found and given to the New York Post newspaper. A story initially paraded as false, but proven to be true, and since then, these jigsaws have been slowly falling into place because ultimately there was potential corruption between the Bidens, the Ukrainian government, and money laundering, including possibly FTX. I, of course, do not have all the evidence, but these things happen in politics and these things definitely happen in foreign policy. So these jigsaws were falling into place inside the US, inside NATO, inside the EU, inside the G7, inside the Five Eyes, inside Russia, and inside Ukraine. I do want to do a special shout-out here for the United Kingdom, who is especially an anti-Russian country, largely because of illicit Russian money flowing through London, but also because the FSB has been actively taking out dissident Russians on British soil. The UK's foreign policy is always simple. To keep the US in Europe, to keep the Germans down, and the Russians out. And that's how they maintain relevancy. And relevancy after COVID and Brexit was critical to the UK. The only influence the UK had over anyone in Europe after Brexit was through NATO. So it turned out that the most hawkish of players, other than the US itself, was the UK. So I've explained in very simple terms the motives of the key players. What about the key events? I've already mentioned Russia's attack and invasion in 2014. But in 2014, Russia was weak. Sanctions on Russia in 2014 imposed by the West hit the Russians hard. However, by 2022, the Russian economy had decoupled enough from the West to withstand any future fallout. 
Angela Merkel and Donald Trump had left the scene. These two leaders, alongside Macron of France, were the only people who would have either prevented the invasion by sheer personality, deal-making, or whatever that would have de-escalated something in Ukraine. While these key personalities left the stage, bar President Macron, a new player entered the stage, that of Vladimir Zelensky, a comedian and an actor that became president of Ukraine on a mandate end the civil war. However, because he was in office and events moved too quickly with Western and Russian troops crawling all over Ukraine and jigsaw pieces, like I mentioned, falling into place, oh, and being held hostage to his own nationalistic right, nothing really happened. NATO expansion to Russia's borders and its own open invite strategy to new members meant that the geopolitical issues of Estonia and Poland were now also the geopolitical issues of the U.S. The Accords, that's the Minsk Accords 1 and 2, were essentially delaying tactics pretty much so Russia gets ready for its potential economic fallout from whatever it wants to do in Ukraine, and from a Western perspective, it is getting Ukraine ready for a military fallout with Russia. First, Minsk Accord, initially known as the Minsk Protocol, was drafted in 2014 by what is known as the Trilateral Contact Group on Ukraine that consisted of Ukraine itself, Russia, and the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe, OSCE, with mediation, by the way, from leaders of France and Germany in what was then called the Normandy format. The agreement was signed on the 5th of September 2014. This agreement followed multiple previous attempts to stop the fighting in the region and aimed to implement an immediate ceasefire. The agreement failed. Fighting continued and was thus followed with a revised updated agreement called Minsk II, which was signed on the 12th of February 2015. This new agreement consisted of a package of measures including a ceasefire, withdrawal of heavy weapons from the front lines, release of prisoners of war, constitutional reform in Ukraine granting self-government to certain areas of Donbass and restoring control of the state border to the Ukrainian government. While fighting subsided following the agreement signing, it never really ended completely, and the civil war continued, and the agreement's provisions were never implemented by pretty much anyone, and they were all pointing fingers at one another. Then, of course, there were two gas pipelines, Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. The whole point of building Nord Stream 1 and then Nord Stream 2 was to supply cheap, unlimited gas to Germany and the European Union. This was built by Russia and Germany. It was built because Ukraine had become an unreliable gas transit mechanism between Russia and Germany. Every US president warned against European reliance on Russian gas. One, because the US felt it was a security risk to the West, i.e. the US itself, generally, and it's sensible because it would make the EU reliant on the enemy, the Russians. But two, as a side issue, these minions in Europe should really be buying gas from the US anyway. That aside, this blatant disregard of US interests was a red line for the United States. Joe Biden overtly stated that if Russia went into Ukraine, both Nord Stream 1 and 2 would be taken out. In case you were interested, they were taken out. NATO had briefly already irked Russia by hosting missiles in Eastern Europe supposedly aimed at Iran. Iran? Seriously? Anyway, that 
had irked the Russians a lot because those missiles they felt were really aimed at Russia. The United States had also started pulling out of the missile agreements that had been signed both in the Soviet era and with Russia itself. But all was not lost. The Kremlin, in late 2021, contacted the White House to suggest no more NATO expansion. By default, no NATO in Georgia and Ukraine. Russia asked for some last-ditch security guarantees. Keep in mind that the Russian government had been warning about Ukraine and Georgia as red lines since 2008, openly and publicly. So in my view, this was a last shot in the dark. The draft treaty that the Russians drew up asked for no more NATO military exercises in Eastern Europe, no more expansion of NATO, and ultimately the US rejected the proposal. Who the hell are the Russians to tell us what to do? Someone on Biden's team said, and I'm quoting, All countries have the right to decide their own future and their own foreign policy, free from outside interference, and that goes for the Ukraine, and it also goes for NATO, its allies, and the alliance itself. End quote. This pretty much semi-sealed Ukraine's fate, but there was one last thing. Russia had amassed troops of about 150 to 170,000. I think they did not have the intent to invade at the time, but by show of force, forced the Ukrainians to the negotiating table to implement Minsk II. I think that to the last second, the Russians were hesitating and they weren't sure if they should or could or would invade. It was then that Biden started to leak satellite images and made comments about the consequences to Putin if he went into Ukraine. Even Zelensky then went on record to calm the situation down. He had started to feel that this was only going to provoke the Russians into a needless reaction, one that was not necessary. Either way, Ukraine would be ready for it because Ukraine had been preparing for about seven or eight years for this eventuality. I think that at the last moment, after all the provocations, Russia, and I'm literally saying this, walked into Ukraine. Putin told his generals to have one hand behind their backs and conduct what he called the SMO, that special military operation, rather than a full-scale invasion. That was on the 24th of Feb, 2022. The US essentially saw this as a sort of victory. You can weaken or even destroy Russia without losing a single US citizen or even any Western citizen. Russia saw this as a needed existential thing to do. Ukraine was thus invaded and would more overtly lose its sovereignty. In the next episode, I will talk about the winners and losers of this war. If Russia surprised Ukraine when it invaded, Ukraine surprised Russia with its staying power. NATO surprised Russia with its support to Ukraine. The EU surprised even the US with its own ability to destroy itself. And the world outside Europe surprised the US with its tacit support for Russia. 